this evening. Um, I think, really, it's, it's brilliant to see so many here. For the tape, it's four. No, a bit more than that. Um, and I, it's not a tape these days, is it? It's digital, but anyway, you understand, the recording. Um, well done on coming out on a night like this. Um, I did talk to Jill and Graham at, uh, at lunchtime just to say, what do we do with the way the weather's going? And they both said, actually, it seems okay. So um, it's their fault. Yes, Graham's. <laughs> we share everything here, you see, including the faults. <laughs> so today we're thinking of um, Jesus, the hidden king in Mark. And I thought, as you'll see the way Mark unfolds, the servant king would be a great song to start with. And so let's rise and join in the servant king. On heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veil, not to be served, but to serve, and give your life that we might live. This is our goal, the servant king, he calls us now to follow him. He bring our life as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. There in the garden of tears, my heavy load he chose to bear. His heart with sorrow was torn. Yet not my will, but yours, he said. This is our God, the servant king. Thanks. I just thought of that. This <laughs> is a daily offering of worship to the servant king. Then the in his sight. As This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. So let us learn how to serve. 
and in our lives and throne him. Lord Jesus, you, the servant king, we ask that your Holy Spirit will help us to see you afresh this evening and to see how to respond to you afresh. We thank you for all that you did when you came. And now we ask for your Holy Spirit to move amongst all of us that we may both receive and share in your name. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please do be seated. I hope everybody's got a handout um, with that sort of um, analysis of Mark on the inside. And we'll be referring to that. If there are some here who know there are others who would have been here, but it was a bit too cold or slippy, and you want to take some extra handouts for your friends who aren't here tonight, please do. They are also available on the website, but I think to have them printed is kind of like easier, if you know what I mean. Well, let's just move across now to our talk. Or we can sing a hymn again. <laughs> ah! I think I'm going to move this down here. So this is our third uh, in the Lent series, The Hidden King in Mark's Gospel. And we're looking at portraits of Jesus uh, you will probably remember from last time that a portrait, uh, the best definition I've seen, description is a remembrance of a friend. And it's the contribution of the person who's being portrayed and the one doing the portraying. And we've looked at different ones as examples where artists have taken um, Jesus and, and, and painted him and wanted to say something about him. So what do you think of this picture? What's, where do you think, what part of the world? Yes, it is, it's, it's, it's Japan. And what would you say about who's there? Well, if you look at Jesus first, you see he's got the nail marks in his hands. Yes, it could be Thomas. Who else did Jesus go and meet personally? That's it, yes. It's actually um, Jesus saying to Peter, do you love me? It comes from John's Gospel, actually, the, the text. 
and it's uh, in the fashion of a Japanese woodcut. Um, only produced recently, 2011, there's a Christian group of artists, uh, sorry, a group of Christian artists doing um, artwork like this. Well, now let's look then at a literary portrait, because for, to do that, we need different tools. And this evening, we're going to use more of these tools as we go along. The shape of the text, interaction between characters, language and how words are used, the point of view, the invitation for us to work out what's going on, text, reader, and Holy Spirit. Well, let's begin with Mark. There's no reading because actually we're going to be lo looking quite a bit at the text as we go on. So we may start now. Jesus, the hidden king, a portrait of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. How does Mark look? The shape of the text gives you a bit of a, an introduction, so let's begin there. The shape of the Gospel of Mark is like this. It happily breaks down into four parts or four acts. Yes, it would be helpful if you have a Bible handy because we do look at different verses as we go. The first um, act, in uh, using act as a, like in the theatre, the first act is the public ministry of Jesus. That's the first eight chapters thereabouts. Then the attention turns and Jesus teaches the disciples and gives them more attention. And then Jesus goes to Jerusalem, stays in Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, goes in and out to the temple courts and debates. And during that time, he spends more time with the disciples explaining things, and then there's the Last Supper. Then the last uh, act is arrested, the two trials, or better, hearings, they weren't legal trials, uh, the cross and the resurrection. Now, one of the ways we can use shape is by seeing it like that, and that helps us get our head around where we are. There's another way we can use this as well. We can look at the narrative pace. The narrative pace is the amount of narrative time given to whatever time is being represented. So, what we've got here is that the first two parts, they happen away from Jerusalem, Jesus, the public ministry, and the time with Jesus and his disciples, and that's 63.8% of the gospel. You'll be glad to know. There are 666 verses in Mark, and if you just count them, that's where it comes out at. <clears throat> and you have to double count to make sure, you know, measure twice, cut once. And then the second part, in Jesus in Jerusalem, is 36%. That's quite interesting because the other gospels have a much shorter space allocated to the passion and the resurrection. So that's the space there. Now let's see what time is it. That first period, that 63%, covers approximately three years. Nobody knows quite how much. That next bit, the 36%, how much would that cover? About a week. Oh dear. Well done those who read the handout. <laughs> Yes, about seven days. So what we find is that actually it's quite quick moving, that first part. It had to be, wouldn't it? To squeeze the highlights of three years into just, um, what is it, 400 verses. And then the, the, the next part, 
of just those seven days has that huge chunk of 36%. So in, for Mark, the passion, that's those second two, uh, sorry, the, the second pair, the passion is really important. And that's why it's got so much space there. And if you look at it in terms of what's going on, the pace works in a narrative like this, that when you're skipping along, it just goes along quickly. When you want to attend to it, you spend a lot of time just talking about a little time. And so it is as if it's slowed up. So in the first part, Judea and Galilee, there's hardly any reference that gives you any clue about time at all. You couldn't say three years from looking at Mark. The second, Jerusalem, actually, it starts by saying it was on this day, it was on this day, and this day. And by the time you get to the trials and, 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 the, and the cross, it's down to hours. On the third hour, it was this, and then on the sixth hour, and so on. So the slower it goes, the more attention that's given to that small space of time is a way of saying, that in the Gospel of Mark, that's really important. So do, please, O reader, attend. That makes sense? Sorry, was that a yes? Thank you. Well, let's start and look at the first one. Um, I'd be grateful if you could tell me if you can read what comes on the screen, but, but actually it's just a summary of what you've got here. So if you've got this, if you can read it on the screen, it's just a bonus. This is the first part. And what we've got, we're going to look at some key verses, the typical action that filled that space, the interaction with Jesus, where it happened, and then what Jesus himself does, and then just some comments to give us a, a, an understanding of what's going on in that part of Mark. So if you look, let's just take... Uh, I don't know if this is quite the same. Oh, it is. It's very good. If you turn just to chapter 1, what you've got, if you look at it, is the title in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God, full stop. Then it goes, as it is written, I will send a messenger, and that's John the Baptist. And helpfully, the NIV has put headings there. You can see they're, they're quite short little pieces. So the baptism of Jesus moves quickly on to Jesus announces the good news. Two verses. The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe. Then the call of the disciples, 16 down to 20, four, five verses. And so it goes on. Very quick. Now, in fact, in the Greek, it's even quicker. Because when they translate the NRV, they try to make it flow as if it were you were reading a book today. And so it uses the same phrase, uh, kai euthus it is, which means simply immediately, and next, right next, um, and they translate in lots of different ways. So if you, if you look behind the English and look at the Greek, all of these just say, and immediately this happened, immediately this happened, immediately this happened, it goes on. Let's just do something. Um, let's look at, after John, verse 14 and 15. The time has come, said the kingdom of God, has come near, repent and believe the good news, and that's it. There's no further explanation. Um, Jesus prays in a solitary place, verse 35, just that little bit there. It says, 
do come in, please make sure you've got one of these. Right, so here we are. We're, we're, talking, we're looking at Jesus calls the first disciples and then two things happen. First, verse 121, Jesus drives out an unclean spirit. They went to Capernaum on the Sabbath and this man came into the synagogue possessed by the, the, the impure. That's, I don't know, it's an unclean, literally, unclean spirit. Um, and, cried, and the spirit cried out through him, what do you want with us? Verse 24, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus, sternly. Come out of him. And the spirit came out. The spirit, this is something interesting. When, when we looked, if I just go take you back one, when we look at the, um, the people who actually uh, interact, we've got four here. We've got the Jewish crowds, the unclean spirits, the disciples and the Jewish leaders. All of these are people, these are characters that speak. So here we've got the Jewish crowds. Now in this part of Mark, the Jewish crowds have the faintest idea who Jesus is. And if you look at every, every encounter, they never even use his name. They don't call him a rabbi or a teacher or a prophet. He's just somebody who's shown up and has the ability to heal, to teach, and to deliverance, uh, exercise spirits. They're feeling their way. The spirits, well, they describe him as son of God. But actually, when um, the spirit happens to speak, Jesus then shuts down the spirit and say, you must be quiet. The disciples, well, the disciples are really slow learners. You know the word disciple means learner. Don't you? Well, they are like slow learners, really slow learners. Um, and the Jewish leaders, well, they look at Jesus as a threat and they try to work out how to come to terms with that. So here we've got Jesus tells the um, Uh, sorry, where's the healing now? Here we are, and the healing. As soon as they left the, the synagogue, um, we had um, that evening, verse 32, the people brought to Jesus all who had ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed many. He drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. The theme of, of, of Mark that I'd like us to look at tonight is how why Jesus is presented as the hidden king and why is it that time and again he says don't speak he says to the demons don't speak and the interesting thing is that although he says that to the demons just now and again when mark put it together mark actually quotes what the demons have got out before jesus shut them up and and this is the irony of it the demons in Mark say, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, be quiet. And the people say, be quiet. But who had the most accurate perception of who Jesus is? Well, firstly, it was his father who spoke at the baptism at the transfiguration. And second, it's the demons. Can you believe it? The demons are what they call in, uh, in, in narrative terms, reliable witnesses. What they say is true. They're saying it because they're frightened of it. And they're saying it as a ground for having an argument. 
But other people are saying things like, I don't know who you are. And you remember in a bit, we'll come to it, uh, Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they say, well, well, like this. So Jesus tells the demons to be quiet, but occasionally like here, it sneaks out. And he tells the healed people not to tell anybody. Um, let me see. Verse 40, uh, 40. A man with leprosy came to see Jesus, and he begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant to see a man trapped like that. And so he reached out his hand. Isn't that lovely? He reached out his hand and touched him. He said, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See, you don't tell this to anyone. Go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded. Verse 45, instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he stayed outside in lonely places. And yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Jesus is quiet. I'll heal you, but don't tell anybody. Now, I think that's slightly unrealistic, don't you? Mm. That's what he's doing. And Well, if you've, just been, if you've just been healed of leprosy, I mean, well, I don't think anybody in any of the text, anywhere in the text, actually does what they're told so on, this, on this particular front. So what we've got is we've got Jesus basically doing lots of teaching, healing, and exercising, and telling people not to spread it abroad, but it leaks out. And the interesting thing, there are two interesting things I think that stand out for me in this. The first is, do you notice, if you read through this, Jesus very rarely invites people to follow him as a disciple. He calls the disciples in verse 16, and then he calls them a bit later, he calls James and Peter and Andrew, then he calls James and John. But a lot of his healings are just healings. They are grace gifts. There's no, so you can follow me. It was just, here's somebody in need, and he just blessed them by healing them, and then went on his way. So I think for us today, we don't do ministry in order to fish. We do ministry in order to share love. And the interesting thing is, if you look at it, Jesus didn't go looking for anybody in, this, in Mark. The people found him and came to him, because they realized here was somebody who could change their lives, and for whom it it was just a gift to be blessed by him. So we have lots of healings and general encouragements around the place. Um, you've got the, the business of the man let down through the roof. I mean, you, you know them well. Jesus calming the storm. You've got this um, lovely business of the five, feeding of the 5,000 in uh, Mark chapter 6. Now, the interesting thing about that is this is just to help you understand how the disciples are faring. If you go to Mark chapter 6 and you turn to verse 30, it says there, the apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they'd done and taught. What was that about? Look back. Mark chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus went about teaching from village to village and called the 12, verse 7, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits, unclean spirits. Yeah? So Jesus sent out the disciples and they were practicing doing this healing. And it was all quite elementary, as Mark conveys it. They just went out and if there was a need, they prayed and God used their prayer and blessed. 
And they all came back, verse 30, really keen to say to Jesus, you know, oh, you wouldn't believe what's happened. And I'm, Jesus says, actually, I think I might. <laughs> Surprise, but... And then, verse 31, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, Jesus said, come with me to a quiet place. Let's have a, I don't know, what would we say today? A tutorial, a mentoring session. Let's just get away from the crowd and let's just reflect on what's gone and see, see what God has done through you. So they went away, verse 32, by themselves to, in a boat to a solitary place. Many saw them reading, however, they, they knew where they were going. They were just going around the headland to a quiet little bay. So they go over the top of the headland and guess what? As they come around the headland, they look into the beach, and what do they see? People coming down onto the beach. And what do you think the disciples thought? What was that? Oh, no, exactly. Yeah, rats. That's the way, that's the way I do it. No! Something like that. And look, so verse, many saw, so verse 34, so when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began teaching many things. Who is not mentioned at all? The disciples. Who had the compassion? Jesus. So this is the disciples at work. So they go on, they, Jesus heals, and they, then it's late in the day and the disciples say Hello. By this time it was late. So, verse 35, the disciples came to him and they said, Dear Lord, this is a remote place. Really, says Jesus. And it's already very late. Well, well, isn't it? <laughs> Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus said, You give them something to eat. And then, verse 37, they said, that would take more. You must be joking, Lord. I mean, that's colloquially, put it what they're saying. That would take more than a half year's wages. And we did go and spend that much on bread and give it all to, I don't know what we do. What do you think was going on there? Well, it did lead to a miracle, but at this stage, what was going on in the disciples' heads? Yes, sorry? Yes, I think you're on the right track. Jesus is testing them, but in what, what, why is this a good moment to test them? They? Yes, they are tired. And it's to be tested while you're tired. Um, they've just been on a mission tour in pairs, haven't they? And God has used them to heal and to exercise, things they've never ever done before. So they're now back here, so Jesus said, okay, go on then. And what did the disciples do? They think about it logically and... Yeah. Exactly. So why didn't they say, okay, Lord, we've done this before and, and you'd be amazed, it worked. Jesus said, I expected it. So pray again then. They didn't. Because I think, going back, look at the first word they say about the people. 36. Send the people away. The disciples didn't want the people there. They didn't want to feed them. 
They wanted to get rid of them. And what happened is their desire to spend time with Jesus and get shot of the crowd meant that when Jesus said, well, go on, then you do it. You're learning about this. They went straight back to, no, 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 that's not what we want, Lord. We want to get rid of it. See, the disciples, they are really um, not just slow learners. They're, they're devious learners as well. The self-interest all wound in with their ministry. And you see that. And Jesus looked through it. So he says, that, and, the, and the, the clue is, why do they start having an argument about feeding it? The argument doesn't fit. Why are the disciples arguing at all? Jesus then said, I'll do it. And he did it. So we've got, and then you've got Jesus walking on the water and, and you know, um, and so on. So we go through, right the way through to the end of chapter 8. And what we've got, uh, sorry, the middle of chapter 8. And then what we've covered is the public ministry of Jesus. And it's very interesting. Quite a lot of the time Jesus says, I teach this or I teach that. But there's no detail of the teaching. Jesus did introduce parables. But the teaching is often just said, Jesus was teaching, full stop. So that's Act 1. And what I would suggest is, if we, if we look at it, um, we've got Jesus, the prophet of grace, that's what I would, how I describe him, who just blesses people. People find their way to him, and he just heals. He wants quiet, he doesn't want publicity, but somehow it leaks out. And the disciples are trundling along, not completely clear what they've let themselves in for, really, and trying to work it out. So th that's the summary there, and it's summarized on the sheet you've got there as well. Any comments or about this part of Mark before we move on? Does that ring a bell or stimulate a thought? I, I, can I come back to that at the end? Because it's actually the, um, how can I put it, spoiler alert. We're going to get there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's puzzled people. There are books writ written on what's called the messianic secret. You know, why did Jesus keep doing it? Um, anyway, I suggest that we can, we can, there's an answer that may be coming up. <laughs> Like all the Gospels, Mark's Gospel is, is anonymous. There's no name woven into the title. But it very quickly attracted uh, the, the title of the Gospel according to Mark. And uh, the, the, the tradition is that Mark actually knew Peter and spent some time with Peter making notes of the things that Peter could remember of the days when they were uh, ministering with Jesus. So Mark, again, is a bit, a bit like Luke's Gospel last time, is, is, it's second-hand. He's done his research as a historian. Um, and I suspect that you'll see Peter in the, in the text here and there. Let's see as we go. Well, shall we then move to Act 2? So that's 8.27 to 10.52. If you'd like to turn to 8.27. Oh, sorry, for, I, I, I apologize. 
I apologise to the blind man in 822. Because the f this first act finishes with this blind man. It's, it's just brilliant writing. So can we just do quickly do that, and then we'll go on to act two. Um, at age 22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Oh, wrong. I beg your pardon. It's the wrong blind man. <laughs> I was looking for Bartimaeus. Hang on a sec. Oh, he's, Bartimaeus is in, is in this act. He's act two. So that's okay. Just pause on Bart and blind men until a little bit longer, a little bit later. So in age 27, Jesus turns to the disciples in, when they were traveling in the area around Caesarea Philippi, and he says to them, who do people say that I am? And they reply, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others. Then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him, that same secret, secrecy thing. This was the turning point for the disciples. They learned enough through Peter to be ready now for a bit more teaching about what Jesus is going to come and do. If you look at the map, that's the Holy Land in Jesus' time. Um, Jesus ministered in the region of Galilee and down in Judea, particularly around uh, Jerusalem. These two areas are the areas where there are concentrations of Jews. And it is in these areas where there are Jews in huge concentrations that Jesus especially emphasized not to tell anybody. If you look, there's um, a man who's healed and he came from across the Jordan, from the Decapolis. And Jesus told him to go and tell the people in the Decapolis about what Jesus had done. And unfortunately, like everybody else, he, he was so thrilled at being healed that he decided he was going to tag along with Jesus. He never went. But I mean, the, the interesting thing is that it is only in Jewish areas that Jesus is saying, I don't want you to talk about this yet. So that's just a little thing to, to, to factor in. Therefore, it was only when they were in Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you look at the map, right at the top, that's where it is. If you just see in the little box there, that's Caesarea Philippi. That is outside Galilee and outside Ju Judea. So when they're away from the Jewish homeland, heartland, they can talk more freely. And that's when they have this conversation. In this section, Jesus uh, 8 through to 10, um, Jesus is now revealing much more about himself. After Peter has been warned not to tell anybody else, Jesus goes on 8.31 he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And then Peter took him aside. This is the first time that the seriousness of Jesus' mission emerges. It doesn't come through in that first eight chapters. It's a public ministry of grace and blessing. Now the disciples can understand, have understood a bit more. Jesus says, actually, I have come to die and rise again. And there's Peter. He took Jesus aside and rebuked him. And then Jesus looked at the disciples and then he rebuked Peter in turn. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, merely your human concerns. 
in 831, then across in 931, just the other side of the page, um, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and then across in 1033, and again he explained, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests. There were three passion predictions in this section of Mark. And every time they're explicit that Jesus is, has come to die. It wasn't what people expected of the Messiah. It was completely unexpected. The Messiah, they thought, was going to be Meshach, the, Meshach, the person who's anointed by the Holy Spirit, by God, to come and reinstate Israel at the center of the world. They were going to be somebody who would build up the nation. But what Jesus is saying is, I have come in order to die and rise again. And so it's almost as if you, you leave behind the sunlit plain of that first period of three years. And now things are getting more serious. And now people are being faced, uh, the disciples are being faced with unimaginable things. And Peter tries to resist. But it is interesting, in this section, straight after that, verse nine, chapter 9, you've then got the transfiguration. Another revelation of who Jesus is, a bit more of a clue. So they see him, verse 2, they go up there. Peter has this bright idea of, of putting up three shelters, a bit like a retreat center, I suppose. If you go up there, you can remember that people had a vision here, you know. So we used to go in around African game parks. They used to say, uh, that's where the lions were yesterday. And you think, oh, really? So um, <laughs> Peter just thinks of the Holy said before engaging my... Then this cloud comes, and his father and him says, this is my son, listen to him. And it's very interesting, in the first appearance of the voice from heaven, which is at the baptism, that is actually that his father is speaking to his son, and we overhear it. He says, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This time, the voice from heaven is speaking to the disciples, not to Jesus. He, the, 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 our heavenly Father is saying, listen to him, he is my son. And so a bit more of the round, the full three-dimensional understanding of who Jesus is comes into focus. You've got the transfiguration. Then they come down and you have this uh, healing, uh, the uh, casting out of the spirit. It's very interesting that this is the last exorcism in the whole of Mark. There were 10 of them in that first eight chapters. There's one here, and there's one that's done by somebody they don't know, and the disciples claim about because he's not a disciple, but they use Jesus' name, and somehow the Spirit came out. And then the healings and the exorcisms die away because it's becoming more and more focused on Jesus the person, and it his life is what's going to speak now of who he is, rather than what he did. And then we get, just as we come to the end of this uh, section, verse, chapter 10, verse 46. <coughs> uh, sorry, ver verse 35 and 46, through to 46. Jesus still trying to help the disciples. He's given the third uh, prediction that he will die and rise again. And what do James and John say? Excuse me, Lord. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Well, could one of us sit at your right and the other sit at your left? Can you imagine? 
again, it's sort of muddled thinking. They want to be near Jesus, but they want to be in the position of honor. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Verse 38. So there, Jesus says, I'm going to die. They say, actually, Lord, we want to know where we're going to sit in heaven. And then, this is the, the lovely um, bit at the end of this section, the, this second act. Verses 46 to 52. They came down to Jericho, and as, as he went along, a, a large, with the large crowd, a city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. They told him to be quiet. He shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stops and says, call him. And they call him. What do you want me to do, says Jesus, verse 51. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight. And once again, did he go? No. He hung around. In fact, he followed Jesus along the road. Now, just look. The crowd say, he, th this blind man's there, and they say, somebody's coming along, there's a fuss. Who is it? Jesus of Nazareth. The blind man called, when he wants to address him, to catch his attention, says what? No. Je verse 47. When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. David, was the, that was the royal line. If he had seen that Jesus was the son of David, he had seen that this is the line through whom the Messiah will come. So at the crowd just see him as a local lad who's made good. The blind man sees him as this is somebody that God is sending to us from the Davidic line when God promised that from this will come a saviour. So do you see that the, the irony is the blind man sees and the seeing don't. Mm. Now, I think that's quite interesting. It means you don't need to physically see. Sometimes people say, it'd be lovely if I could see Jesus. Have you ever had that thought? You know, if I could meet him, I would know, you see. Well, can I say, I think the good news and the bad news is the same. Our heart's response to Jesus is not determined by physically seeing him, really. It comes by the Spirit illuminating and opening us to what is true. And you don't do it by saying, oh, he is five foot six. Oh, that, that's all right then, now I know. It doesn't work like that. Um, and it's very interesting, nowhere in the Gospels do we get a description of Jesus. Nowhere in Acts do we get a description of Paul, except at one point they suggest he's a short person. But, because the physical is not the important thing. So that blind man, just lovely, Bartimaeus. I mean, there's, I think there's a whole sermon, a sermon series there, really, just in Bartimaeus. Magnificent. Well, so that's Act 2. And there's been that serious overtone that's now crept in. The disciples still haven't seen it, but Jesus is being explicit with them that actually this is, go is going to get worse before it gets better. Then we turn to Act 3. And again, you'll see these headings are summarized here, so don't worry about it. But just out of interest, can you read that? Oh, good. Oh, thank you. 
That's 20 points. So if we, if we keep it at that, we should be all right in the future. Yeah. So now we move to Jerusalem. And it's interesting that for all the wandering around, Jesus has never been in Jerusalem in Mark's Gospel. Jerusalem stands for a lot. Here now, as they approached Jerusalem, he came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And he sent two people on, and they went to get um, a colt so he could sit on the colt and ride into Jerusalem. And they threw the palm branches down as he came in, and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. There's that royal line again. Jesus went into Jerusalem, entered, and went into the temple courts, verse 11. He looked round at everything. Since it was late, he then went out to Bethany with the twelve. So this is the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus enters Jerusalem. And he enters on a colt, and the crowd think, this is the man we want. And they, they start throwing down palm branches and so on. And they were thinking, as you probably were, of Zechariah 9.9, weren't you? On page 955. 955, just to quickly help you back to the, the minor prophets. Nine, nine. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was God's visitation. This was God coming to save. This is what they saw in Jesus. So back to Mark. Jesus then goes in and out to the temple courts. It says there in verse 11, he saw the temple courts and then went out to Bethany. And what is interesting is that he, it seems that things that he's got the freedom to move in and out and debate and so on. But at the same time, behind the scenes, um, opposition is building. So in verse 15, Jesus entered the temple courts. He began driving out the traders. Uh, my house we called a house of prayer. And the chief priest, verse 18, and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. That's extraordinary. But it's there. So you've got these two, two parallel stories, two, two parallel events running side by side. Jesus ministering and the leaders fight, trying to work out how they can kill him. So the authority of Jesus questioned and he tells them the parable, they, 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 sorry, verse 20, chapter 11, verse uh, 28. They quite reasonably say, by what authority are you doing all this? Who gave you authority to, to throw people out and come and teach like this? So he asked them a question about John the Baptist, which they fudge. And so Jesus says, neither will I tell you. And then he told them the parable of the tenants, the tenants who misbehaved with their responsibility for a vineyard. And verse 12 of chapter 12, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he spoke the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So there's more teaching, more discussion in the temple courts, the, the widow's offering. And then one of the teachers of the law came 
noticing that Jesus had given them the good answer, he said, which is the most important commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God. And then he says, this is the interesting. Well, uh, the second is these. Well said, teacher, said the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there's no other one. This is verse 32. To love God with all your heart, all your understanding, all your strength, is, this is the key line, is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. To love God is more than all we do. To love God is more important than going to church. That would be our equivalent, wouldn't it? That's not a cue to can go at this point. But it is. I was preaching at uh, St. John's Harbour and uh, trying to explain what sin was, as you do every now and again. Um, and I was saying, sin actually, to summarise it, is not, it's not something you do wrong which is morally wrong, although it may be morally wrong. Sin is when you do what God has asked you not to do or has asked you to do something and you haven't done it. So God asks you to do something and you don't do it. That is sin. Sin in Scripture is actually to do with the relationship between God and us. It's not a codified law. Um, and so I said, if God said to you tonight, this is at St. John's Harbour, 400 people on, a, on, a, on a, an evening. It was a great, it was a time of hunger. That I would preach for an hour and they'd say, why have you stopped? It was brilliant like that. And I said, okay, so if God said you should be at home writing a letter to one of your relatives and not go to church tonight, and you've turned up at sh church tonight, what have you done? And they go, click, 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 we've sinned. I said, precisely. What? Yeah. Now, I'm not suggesting you have sinned tonight, but it is, that's how it works. Um, the, the, we uh, need to be open to where the Lord leads and then to follow where he leads. And this man here is saying the same. If I love enormously, it's, more, it's worth more than all the regular rhythm of worship and stuff. And I think it, actually that's quite freeing. If you're in church, it's because you've, you're led to be in church and you're not neglecting to meet together, as it says. But if you are doing, visiting somebody who's sick instead of being in church on Sunday, and because the Lord has led you to do that, brilliant. Let us know. We could even pray for you. You, know, you can always text or have you communicate, pigeon or whatever it is. We, do you see? It's this kind of openness to God. And this is what Jesus says. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Well, so it goes on through there. The chief priest questioned. Um, Jesus talks in verse th chapter 13 about the end times being near, and then we have the Last Supper. Ver that's, that's chapter uh, 14, verse 12 and onwards. And it's interesting. Look at verse 25. Having broken the bread and shared the wine, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day comes when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they sung a hymn, they went out. So it's almost as if the storm clouds are gathering, really. There's this repeated, I'm approaching something where I will lay down my life and be raised. And then he turns and says, you'll all fall away. And this is something that Mark does. Jesus has the disciples and then he has the inner core. But as you see as it unfolds, Jesus eventually is left on his own. And so he says to them, you'll all fall away. Of course, Peter says, no, no, I, 
I, I, I won't. I, I won't deny you. And Jesus says, before the cock crows twice, you'll have done it three times. But verse 31, Peter insists, no, absolutely not. Then they go to Gethsemane, and here's the most poignant part. Jesus would go out in the morning to pray, but this, this time he went with the disciples. Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He knew what was coming. Then he fell on the ground and prayed. Then he returned, verse 27. Uh, Take this cup from me, he prayed. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? So he went away and prayed again. He came back, they were sleeping again. And then the third time. So even in his hour of need, the disciples can't keep up, can't give the support that Jesus wants. Jesus is more and more having to carry this on his own. All alone. And so by now, it's getting quite, the, the pace is slowing. We're now into the days as we approach um, the arrest. Here we are, verse 43, Judas betrays him. He's arrested. And uh, verse 42, sorry, we finished. Verse 43 opens the next act where the arrest happens. So what we've got is Jesus in the t- this odd situation. The public liked him. The crowds loved him. They came, they flocked to hear him. But he knew that his journey was going to lead through death. And this was unfolding at the very time that the crowds thought he was wonderful. And so finally our last act, which is act four, So Jesus is arrested, and uh, he has the, first he has a trial. Excuse me, a moment. There we are. And we now start the passion narrative proper. I just wonder. Because Peter does dis- doesn't does deny him, I just wonder whether Peter has influenced Mark. Because Peter is aware that he let the Lord down, and so he he's almost living out of his penitence, his repentance, by giving it chapter and verse in great detail. So there's a lot of attention on this part. Whether that was Peter or not, I don't know. So what we've got we've got the two trials. And here, here at last, at last, Jesus is prepared to be straightforward. So the first trial is before the high priest, or the first hearing. Verse 60, chapter 14, verse 60. Second part. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus says unequivocally, I am. And furthermore, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That was the vision of judgment, which is from Daniel, and they knew it. Jesus has been telling people from the beginning to be quiet, not to let stories get around. 
now for the first time he's come clean. And then secondly, he goes before a hearing with Pilate. And Pilate, in chapter 15, verse 2, he uses the, the Roman version of Messiah. Does that, well, are you the king of the Jews then? You have said so, Jesus replies. And the chief priest says, well, there you are. Didn't we tell you? So what have we got to answer Pete's question? I think what Jesus is doing, he is the Messiah in Mark, right from the beginning. It says so in the title, that first verse. But he realizes that for Jews, they have so many fixed ideas about what the Messiah was going to be like and what the Messiah was going to do, that he had to somehow subvert and deconstruct that. And the only way he could do that was, by, was to live like the Messiah is going to live. Because there would be endless debates. And so that's why in those areas um, of Galilee and Judea, he actually doesn't want people to talk about what his ministry is doing. He wants them to watch. And so what Jesus does, he goes through this last act and dies on the cross. And it is almost then he says this, this is what the Messiah looks like. The Messiah is not a conqueror. The Messiah who is someone who dies on behalf of others. The Messiah is not a great person, a Lord. He's someone who actually tastes death, lays down his life for others. And I think that, Pete, is why he keeps saying, not yet, shush, just don't talk about it. Let me show you. And what he shows them is something totally, I mean, it was a, a, a huge, nobody ever thought it was like that. None of the Jews. That's why a lot of the Jews, they, they thought maybe he is the Messiah, but then when he died on the cross, they thought it couldn't possibly be so. In Leviticus, it says that a, a person of faith, uh, of God's favor, cannot die on the cross. It's the worst way of being killed. And in the song in Philippians 2, that's picked up. You remember, he emptied himself, came like as a man, then as a servant, then he died, and even death on a cross. You can almost see the, the steps going down and down and down. That's Jesus. He did all that. And then, this lovely little bit. Now, you may notice at the end of Mark, in chapter 16, that it finishes at verse 8, but there's a bit there in italics. The reason is that the version we have of Mark doesn't, it stops at verse 8, and the Greek is literally halfway through a sentence and it stops. It's as if we've just lost the last page or somehow it got detached. And there are two ways of approaching that. There are first some people who say, well, maybe that's what Mark meant. He was, he was giving us a puzzle. And, and some people say, maybe actually he was suggesting that as we read the gospel, we complete the reading by what he does in our lives. And others, I think more prosaically, say, actually, he's lost a bit. He did, Jesus did some stuff and they have prepared and suggested uh, an appendix which you can treat as if it were the ending that isn't there. So that's why we get that bit in italics. So what we've actually got, which we're sure about, which came from Mark, with Mark's perspective on things, is this. The women, note, who watch from afar, go to the tomb. They see this young man. He says, you're looking for Jesus of the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. But go 
tell his disciples and Peter. Do you notice that? Go tell his disciples and Peter. The, the man who couldn't forgive himself for having denied Jesus. Jesus is going to seek him out. There, and you will see him there. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, they said nothing to anyone for a bit, because they did actually eventually, because we've got it down here. But I think at that moment in time, they were just bewildered is a good word. So that's how it finishes. Mark considers the death of Jesus so important, first, so that we understand what the Messiah is like. Second, so we understand the way of, of discipleship. He said in Caesarea Philippi to Peter, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And the cross was the, as you know, it's the um, instrument of execution. You need, to, you need to do what I've just done if you're going to come and follow me. And people did. Irenaeus, who was a great Christian bishop, thought, like many of the first century Christians, it was a privilege to die for your faith. And they actually wanted to, because they thought, they thought it would be a witness. People would see it, their lives would be changed. And as it said, the, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It did actually uh, give great, much more power to the gospel to see people say they were carefree about their lives. I went to uh, uh, in Malawi, we have a link with Malawi, uh, and there's a cathedral by a lake there with these headstones of young missionaries who went out in the 1890s and 1900. And they were all about 24, 26, 27. And they, would, they went out there knowing they were going to die. And they wrote home saying to others, come and help us to proclaim the gospel. And then they went to glory, from malaria or whatever it was. That's what Mark is trying to say. Discipleship is wholehearted and it's the way of the cross. If you were to stand back and say from the beginning to the end, um, being the Lord's disciple does mean... Uh, seeing healings and exorcisms, and those should happen today, and they don't because we're not good at it, and we could be better. But that is not the his that's really not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that we are people of love who will suffer on behalf of others so that they may be blessed. That's really what uh, discipleship's about: denying oneself and taking up the cross. Now, um, when I was um, in Africa, they, they were stuck. That little group that um, was doing a, um, a performance of the crucifixion, John Stainer's crucifixion. Do, do some of you know it? We know of it. Okay, it's a it's um, a short um, musical oratorio written for a parish choir. John Stainer could write sophisticated music. This was very simple, and in it, there's a quite well-known um, chorus called "God So Loved the World," usually sung unaccompanied. You might know that too. Well, this is uh, and there's the music. If you just want to hum along, just for now. Um, the interesting thing is, uh, can you see it? That, that is the copy I sang from when I was there. Chris got, I bought it for, or somebody bought it, for one rand, because I was working in Southern Africa, and it was bought in South Africa. What's lovely about this is that it, it's a, the story of the crucifixion is told in song, and there are five hymns placed through it that the congregation can join in. And the last hymn is that reflection on Jesus dying on the cross. And these are the words. And I think uh, John Stainer, who set the, uh, the music, and Sparrow Simpton, who's a clergyman, who, set, who wrote the words, has, has quite got what Mark was saying to us there. And this is the hymn. It goes, all for Jesus. You may know it. All for Jesus. This our song shall ever be, for we have no hope nor savour. 
if we have not hope in thee. All for Jesus, thou hast loved us. All for Jesus, thou hast died. All for Jesus, thou art with us. All for Jesus, crucified. All for Jesus, all for Jesus. This the church's song must be, till at last her sons are gathered, one in love and one in thee. Jesus invites us as his disciples to go with him, to pay the cost that others may be blessed and to rise with him in glory. <sighs> Sorry, I had to accelerate a bit because there are some questions as well. <laughs> Any comments before we move to the, um, the discussion? take that as a not straight away so that's the handout you have and I hope it'll, it'll give you a feel of each of the acts as you read through Mark because I think the tone of a will, will help in the interpretation of it so it gets it gets bleaker and bleaker and then there's just the resurrection that brings new life well, so for each act, there's a question. So question one is for act one, two, three, and four. So what I invite you to do is to find a little spot somewhere with your friends, as I said last time. Um, if you, if you, turn the chairs as much as you like and choose one of these to look at. And then uh, we'll come back in about uh, 20, oh, 15 minutes or so just for some first reflections. All right? Thank you. Okay.
So just uh, two minutes more, two minutes more. Right, do you want to serve to start drawing to a close and then moving back to the middle? Thank you.
Great, thank you. Anybody, anybody like to sort of make a comment about something struck them or a question uh, that uh, Pete can answer? John, do you, do you want to just repeat the question for the, the recording, the short version? Um, yeah, what, what makes us, what through our lives has helped us to be more bold? And actually what comes to mind now is actually being in this church over the years, but actually I think particularly this church, and just being with people who have supported me through various ups and downs. And actually seeing one eye of a bad day, or start moaning about things, um, people still support, and they say, well, we're still with you. Perhaps not literally like that, but in effect. Mm. One still has friends. Mm. And knowing I have friends here, when I'm somewhere else, and maybe got to be a bit bold, that really helps. Yeah. Well, thank you, that. Okay. Any other thoughts? Austin, go on then. Can I say, honestly, you don't need to look at the floor. It's, it's, it's almost as if, if somebody looks you in the eye, you're going to get caught. You just pass that back. <laughs> yes, the, yes, they're very perceptive questions. Um, we looked at number three. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the two commandments and how can this paraphrase inform our discipleship? And we discussed about what are we as church? What should people see as church? Is it a group of religious people who come to this building? But no, they should see us having genuine love. Um, that's what um, <clears throat> they recognise disciples by this. Well, they know that you're my disciples by your love, not mm. not by your you know, holy practice or uh, whatever. Um, and then we, we thought, thought a bit about what is love. And, you know, it's, a, it's a, sadly it's not a very good word in English. It's, it can mean all sorts of things. But it means uh, meeting people's needs, actually seeing them and uh, meeting their needs and with an unconditional reasons as well, going to do that because they are, you know, God's creation, not because, well, we'll do this and then you'll come to church or whatever. It's, so it's an unconditional mm. love as well. So, um, mm. yeah, um, we discussed about... Saying sorry, what's genuine? Saying sorry and, and forgiveness as well. But it's it's no, it's fantastic when you get into it. Um, but it's 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 what real love is. Um, yeah, unconditional. Well, just to give a little trailer, n next week um, we're looking at um, Jesus as the new Moses, and uh, we, we will be looking a bit at Moses in the Old Testament, and we'll be looking at the relationship between the Exodus and the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments actually are a grace gift, although we all think they're law commandments. And we'll be exploring that a bit more. So thank you. Did you you're just helping to pass it. <laughs>
passed quickly on. Great. Well, thank you very much for, for turning out. Let's have a prayer. Um, if we, in the quietness, if something just comes to mind, you'd like to, to lead in a prayer, do. Uh, and then in a moment or two, I'll just draw all our <coughs> prayer to, uh, to a close for now. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll speak to us both through this evening and through this moment.